We're back. We're back. It's distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, dude. How are things? It's just you and me this week, Roth. Just an intimate little little soiree. I bet you're wondering why I called you to this private Zoom call that also has (laughs) Daisy and Brandon on it. I wonder if anybody, has anybody ever like broken up over Zoom, you think? Ugh, God. Right? Yeah, I mean, of all the debasements that the last year had for us, like, somebody that might have otherwise been broken up with via text instead getting broken up with during a pre-scheduled Zoom call is like, it probably happened. I don't even... It's a big world and a lot of bad things happen in it. I don't even think a text would be a ruder way of dumping than a Zoom call. Like, if I had to be like, oh, you know what, can we talk? Let me send you a Zoom link. I was gonna. All right, just want to hop on that. It's just gonna take a few minutes. This isn't the sort of thing where you're gonna have to talk a lot during it. Yeah, that sucks. That would be terrible. I also I wonder if you have like if like people have had the entire breakup conversation over Zoom or not even like the breakup but like the fight where like there's just long stretches of silence and then someone says like I don't know what to say and then there's more silence after that. (laughs) That was uh, that was sort of like the episode we did with Dom was like that. <laughs> it was. It was. In fact, we had to break up with Dom at the end of the episode. No, we were, that would I would never. No, no. That's just like that's the Dom experience. He doesn't he doesn't fill dead air, whereas you and I uh, frantically fill dead air. Yeah. Well, Dom's like a really good like guest. He actually you know he has a lot of stuff to say. He's very informative and stuff like that. It was my fault. I gave him nothing. I was like, hey, how about? the browns they must be pretty good or are they bad we also the baseline level of just dumb shit in an average episode of this can be off-putting to people because like he comes on and he wants to talk about you know his his life and football and we're gonna give him five minutes of like what are the different types of farts do you think (laughs) like there's always gonna be something like that in the monitors with us that's the that's our promise well you overstate the stupidity of this podcast because it's important that we talk about stupid things but that we do it with a keen and observant eye so wow if only someone could take that approach Apply it to a dramatic and I would also say traumatic experience in their own life and put it into a book. Wow, look at you. Now it's your turn to, to be segue. published this very week. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. It is book week, and that's that's why we're we're here to talk and <clears throat> and have a little chat about the night the lights went out, which comes out. That's my book. It came out Tuesday, so you can buy it anywhere in any form you please. And uh, it's about what happened to me three years ago when I uh, had a ham, a brain hemorrhage, and fractured my skull in three places. I was in a coma for two weeks and had respiratory failure, and my heart rate went down to forty-four beats per minute, but not zero, yeah. not zero. I didn't flatline. Like I feel like the you know if you really want I died cred, you have to flatline. Yeah, for, you can take that shit to Colton Burpo. Yeah. This is Drew McGarry's story. Baby. Yeah, but I, but I, I didn't flatline, but I, uh, I went through some shit, and I wrote it all down, and I interviewed my friends and my, my family about what happened because I wasn't awake for two weeks, and I don't have a good, I don't have a good sense of, of my three weeks after that in the hospital, and in many ways of myself after that. So I had to interview a lot of people. Rolf, I, I apologize. I did not interview you for the book because... You were right not to do it. So this happened after the Deadspin Awards in 2018. Right. And we all had a great time there. Uh, it was a fun party. Um, we gave out awards for weird events and, and had shitty flush them down a prop toilet on stage. We did. We all Still one shitty. of the... 
the best bits of weird theater that I've ever been a part of, and I did, I was like a participant in some of my wife's downtown performance RD stuff earlier in the 2000s. Oh wait, can I can I ask you about that before we go back to me? Yeah, if you want to. I mean, I didn't do very much. Well, what she did you have to? Like, what, what what were the performances, and what did you have to do? I didn't have to dance or anything. So she was a dancer and um, a choreographer, and so she and her friend had a whole series of like weird little shows. But sometimes they would want. Um, like a boring looking guy to be on stage in a suit reading something or playing some sort of role. And that was something that I did. So I did some voiceover stuff for them. And what did you uh, have to read? Like, were you reading like something sort of known or was it like, like, no, was it no, like it weird was Allen Ginsberg shit stuff that, that we wrote together, but it was, it wasn't like poetry or anything like that. It was like, basically I was pretending to be a scientist who studied a, um, species of bird that did not really exist, which they were pretending to be. And so I would have to sort of be up there and be like extraordinary at different times and stuff. <laughs> like, which was, so you know, you, I was sort of qualified for it. Were you like so? Were weird. you were you bird watching your wife essentially? Like, I mean, I I would say that I spend my entire life kind of doing that. That it's uh, bird watching, uh, sort of stamp collecting, anything that can be done in sort of a repetitive, sort of nudging, bothering sort of way. That's basically my husbanding practice. I too love to watch birds, baby. Love birds. <laughs> that's right, mate. <laughs> so that's well, yeah. Now that we've gotten to the part of the podcast where we talk in British accents, I will explain why I'm not interviewed in the book, or at least I, why. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. So you go ahead. We had a great time. We just fucking went home. Yeah, like everybody, like not everybody. A lot of people went to karaoke. Dom also went home, and I remember, like, so he and I the next day were like, Megan told us what had happened, and we didn't. I didn't know. Like, I thought we were supposed to record a podcast that day, and right. I, and she said Drew's in the hospital, and I was like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing because he's like forty, and you shouldn't get so drunk that you're in the hospital. Yeah, and like, and then she like laid out what actually happened, and it was totally harrowing. But it was weird. I mean, just like. I wouldn't have had anything to say because the last time I saw you, you were normal. And then the next time I saw you a month and a half after that, you were flat on your back and had lost 30 pounds and, you know, had died. How did I, how did I look in the bed? Uh, like, you remember when they find E.T. in the river? Yeah. And he's like all yeah. white. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, like that. freaked me out when I was like, a kid. Yeah. It was fucked up. So yeah, you kind of look like, like, uh, like near death E.T. I mean, you look like yourself. You just... It was weird. I mean, I, like, we'd been through a whole sort of, like, process as a team and, and you know, in terms of trying to do the podcast, Tim Marchman uh, filled in ably, you know, for you. and But, you know, we thought about you a lot, and I didn't know what version of you would await. You know, like, I had been there during the, the weeks after you were in the coma and when you were still kind of basically tripping balls 24-7 when yeah. you were awake. Because of the brain damage, I would get, you know, we texted, but it, they were weird texts. Like, you would just sort of text me at strange times of day asking me to bring you beer. And then, oh, your did wife I? Would take the, yeah, for sure. And I was like, I guess I can because I was going to come visit you on a week. And you were like, bring Miller Lite. And I was like, all right. I mean, I guess I can do that. Like, I brought, after my sister had her kid, I brought her a Guinness in the hospital. She didn't, the hospital didn't mind that. But in this case, I was like, that seems kind of bad, but I assume someone will stop me from giving him a beer if I'm, not supposed to do it. And at some point your wife did get the phone 
and just <laughs> texted me back, no beers with an exclamation point. And that was <laughs> how I knew that the version of you that I was talking to was just basically, I uh, had somehow traveled back in time into your two and a half year old brain. I remember. And was just making demands seemingly at random at weird times of day. Yeah, I remember demanding beer a lot. I remember believing, and I think I told someone else this, that, that the hospital had like a, a convenience store in it where you could get beer, like for patients yeah. and stuff like that. And that was like a normal thing. And so I kept pe- asking people to go, just go down to the gift shop and get me some beer. And then I was totally okay to have beer, not understanding at all what had happened to me or the fact that, that my alcohol intake might have caused what happened to me. We still don't know what happened, but um, you know, that's, it's entirely possible. So I remember, just demanding beer from everybody and then demanding like like my best friend Howard, his sister Erica visited and like I pulled her like close to me when she visited and I was like, all right, we're getting out of here. Like I was like we were escaping from fucking prison or something and she's like, Drew, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, you're getting me out of here. We're, we're gone. We're going to fucking flee. And she was like, yeah. no, idiot. And, and I said that to like more than one person. So I remember that. Yeah, I mean, there were these... That stuff, the way that we processed it as a team at work, we would get these sort of reports now and then, sometimes from, usually from Megan, and I guess Barry saw you a bunch of times in there. But for most of us, I mean, we were just relying on on sort of secondhand stuff, and then, you know, whenever you could steal your phone away from your wife to send some sort of gnomic and frequently totally incorrect message to us, we'd be like, oh, all right, like, at least he's still in there. The first story that that I remember being told that made me feel like you were going to be okay arrived long before there was any indication that you were really going to be okay, which was you had awakened from the coma. Right. Which was like two weeks. And a nurse asked for you to hold up two fingers and you hold, held up the middle finger on each hand. Yeah. I gave double birds. I hoisted them up. And that was, the, that was reported back to us by Megan and everybody was just like, I would say the, the anxiety level dipped by about a third just for knowing that they're like, all right, well, at some point, like the version of Drew that made that decision, which is the version that we all know and love, is eventually going to fight his way back to the surface and and be himself again. But I, I, of course, I, it's easy for me to fucking say because all I'm doing is doing blogs and podcasting with Marchman. The book, I think, for me, like I didn't really know how. I mean, I knew that it was a struggle because you talked about it, and I knew that this isn't the sort of thing that you know. It's one thing to be a you know the brain magically. Uh, heals itself. That's true. That's what the brain does. It doesn't do it while you like take it easy and read a magazine. Like you had to do a lot of shit to get from, like not even from the double birds version, but from like the version of you that I visited in the hospital where you like had an opinion on a Seahawks Cowboys game despite having been in a coma for the back third of the NFL season. Yeah, that part of my brain still worked. <laughs> but you like to get from from there. I don't think I appreciated it until I read the book. Just how. Not just how long it was, but how much you had to do, like how committed you had to be to to trying to fix this yourself. Well, and I wasn't that committed in the beginning because I was under the impression when I woke up that I was like fully me. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm Drew and I, I write for Deadspin and like I'm the funny guy. And so I, I had all that, you know, like and that I was still under the impression because I was brain damaged that that. 
that nothing really had changed about me intrinsically, but it wasn't true. And I spent a long time in denial of that, much to the detriment of my wife and my children, because I was, you know, I was prone to anger and I was not, um, you know, I, I was, I startled easily. I remember that. Like if Carter like started barking out of the blue, like I would leap up and I would scream out, Jesus Christ, like really loud. Like yeah. I was like totally like my mental reflexes were really shitty. And yet I f- was somehow, I was somehow convinced that th- that was all normal, that that was all like who I was and, and that if, if anything, if it was anything that it was other people wronging me, causing me to react the way I was. Like, it was the dog's well, I, fucking fault for barking too loud. I think that that... I mean, I get that you are holding yourself accountable here or whatever it is. I think in the book, one bit that I appreciated you doing, you do mention all that. I think it's also clear in there, you're not just dragging yourself for no reason. You weren't processing the world the way that you had previously processed it. And right. the hearing loss stuff, which, again, to me was like, when I saw you in, in the hospital, you could generally hear what I was saying because you had an ear that worked. You just also had an ear that didn't work. That's right. Which I think maybe you didn't know at that point. Yeah, I thought, I didn't know it was fully deaf. I was like, oh, I can't hear that well out of this ear, but I had nothing, I had no, no doctor, like the, the hospital had proof that I had been deafened in that ear, but they just, it was buried under a mountain of paperwork and the, the priority was getting me out of the hospital and like up Yeah, and, I was going to say, up. like job one was right. really making sure you didn't fucking crash and die. Yeah, so I was like, okay, well, like, you know, this ear's a little weird, but I, you know, because my other ear was also damaged but like could hear things, you can't tell what your good ear is picking up and what your bad ear is not. That's not really how deafness works. Um, I wish it did. And I didn't really, I also, because I could hear certain things, I didn't really have a perception of how deaf I had become. Um, you know, like, like we're talking right now and I don't have my hearing aid in on the good ear and I don't have my cochlear implant in on the other side, but I can hear you just fine because it's just you and me. But if you mm. and I, if you, if we airlifted this conversation to a really crowded bar you know, and not even like, not even with like music playing and not even with the crowd all that boisterous. We're talking about like, like 4 p.m. or something like that. I, I would not hear you all that well. It would be, it would be lost. Like I would really yeah. have to like lean in. I remember I went to my high school reunion in May of 2019. It was my first trip after I got hurt. And I didn't have hearing aids then. And I didn't have my implant then. And so I was in the room. I was working the room. There was no pandemic. So, uh, and, you know, I go to my friend, one of my old friends, Matt, and uh, I'm talking to him, and I keep leaning in with the good ear, because by then I knew I was deaf, and uh, and I keep leaning in, and he looks at me, and he goes, what are you, hard of hearing? And I go, well, actually, and he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some interesting things have happened just in the last, uh, you know, 16, 18 months. So it was weird, because, like, you know, I, I was raised on TV and movies where the character is very, all the differences are very pronounced right away. Like even Sound of Metal, which is a great fucking movie, like, like Riz Ahmed like knows right away something is wrong. Like you, and they do it with sound effects and it's really, really well done. But there's always that sort of like, oh, like it's, it happens right there. It, there's never that sort of, there's never really the confusion that I experienced of not really understanding what my sensory disabilities were 
and then also what my like emotional disabilities were. Like I really did not, I, I you know you you can't perceive these things. That's why it's brain damage. That's why yeah. you know that's how it works. You that's why mental a lot, a lot of people who have mental illness do not understand that they're mentally ill. It's not like you have the ability to perceive that necessarily. You need that you know diagnosed and and like when it is diagnosed, you have to like trust people the people who are telling you that. And I didn't necessarily trust people at first about this. It seems very hard. I mean, it all reinforces itself. And I think there's some really vivid writing in the book. I mean, it's a weird thing to give somebody credit for a literary feat with. But just in terms of how overwhelming the world is and the sort of incomprehensibility of it is when you're down a couple of senses, as you were for an extended period of time. And that's like, Again, something that I knew, something that I'd seen in, in movies and on TV, and something that you had mentioned, you know, in conversation. And I think for whatever reason, reading it in the book and just reading about, because the, the irritability and stuff in there, you, you clearly feel a great deal of remorse for being sort of snappish and overwhelmed and stuff. But you also explain, it, it just seemed like your day had about 50% more confusion in it than even the worst normal day would. And that was just as a baseline, just in terms of not knowing where people are, not knowing what people necessarily are saying. Every time you're in a large group of people, you're either overwhelmed by the noise because you have a hearing aid or you have no idea what's happening because you have one ear maxing out to try to do the work. Right. There's an element of, of horror to it, really. Like, more than I think I would have expected in there, just how... Uh, frightening the world seemed to you during that period as you wrote yeah because it it's and this is something that happens it's a real thing that happens to people who have hearing loss there's statistics about it um people who have hearing loss like i do if they don't get it treated uh they're more prone to depression they're more prone to the risk of dying by suicide um and one of the reasons why is and i experienced this was that if it was extra work for me to hear in a certain environment you know, I simply wouldn't participate. I would withdraw. And so a lot of people who have hearing loss, they don't go out. Like, they stay home. They withdraw because that's the world that they can tolerate. And I had found that, like, like even something like dinner with my children, I was not really able to, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to, like, enjoy it. And that sucks because that's sort of, like, the highlight of my day is to, you know, be there with my kids at the dinner table eating food that I like. And I, I had a hard time hard time tasting things too because I lost my smell. And so, you know, you have these moments that are sort of like, usually like the signposts of your day. And in a certain way, they're ruined. And I remember I got very angry about that. I would get angry at my kids, especially if they all talked at the same time during the meal and I couldn't make out what they were Which saying. Which is like 100% of how kids communicate <laughs> yeah. 100% that's of the time. That's all kids fucking so like do. That's only when they did that, that's all, I guess. That's all they did. So, you know, they would do that. Um, you know, they wouldn't like what I had cooked. And I would get really mad about that because I myself, you know, had a hard time tasting it. And I wanted them to, like, appreciate it on my behalf. And I just remember not being in a spot where I could, you know, where I could really engage with the world the way that I used to, I remember being very angry is one thing, but also sort of resigned. Um, you know, and that's something you find with people who, who have clinical depression, which is that they simply, they opt not to participate, you know, like they, they can't, they really can't. 
And I remember feeling that way, like where it was just like, and I have this problem now, like even after, you know, even after going to therapy and, and getting my cochlear implant and, you know, and, and sort of restoring my senses as best I could, you know, I, I was thinking about it in terms of like kindness and empathy, because everyone who had saved my life and, and been nice to me after the fact, they were so kind and, and so empathetic. And I was wondering, you know, and I think it's a question for you. Like, I, I was wondering, like, on an existential level, like, do you think kindness is a talent that people have? Because I don't, I don't know what makes some, like, I know kind people when I meet them, right? Like, you ever meet somebody and you're like, that, that is the ni- one of the nicest, kindest people. Like, I have a neighbor, the husband and wife, they are fucking impossibly kind. And it comes so naturally to them. They're just, they always have a sunny disposition. They get frustrated like anybody else. Um, but in general, their default saying is to always be giving and always be thinking about people who are not themselves. And I don't know that I have that. And I honestly don't know if that is like just a natural ability that some people have that I don't. I think you're being too hard on yourself in that regard. Uh, I mean, you know yourself better than me, but I think that that's never been... I mean, you know, it's people are how they are. You know, you're, if your first instinct is not always to make sure that other people are comfortable. And I will say that like from having been around you in, in social settings in before the, the accident that like you're perfectly delightful at parties. You're always trying to facilitate for people and, and make things easier for people. You're not, you weren't just sort of, I mean, I didn't know you in your twenties. Like I'm glad you didn't know me in my twenties. Like I think that people are just sort of different then that they're basically still teenagers, but they're, in bodies that are able to rent cars and buy alcohol and do all kinds of extra damage to those around them. I think kindness as a talent is a really interesting idea. I think that what it is in the people where you see it is a sort of, it's like an enamel on their being that makes it easier to maybe absorb the, the, astringency and the ugliness of the world, but which can be corroded off, you know, by that sort of thing. And I think that for me, the idea of, of recovery and reading your book reminded me of one of my a really dear friend who died in 2016. I'm sorry to hear that. And he'd been s- sick for a long time. And he at the, you know, I saw him a few times at the end of his life and he was always, he had similar sort of, thoughts on this, that he felt that he'd become too short with people or that he was being, you know, too hard on, on his kids or on his wife or just in general. And it was because, I mean, he knew why it was. He was in pain all the time and he knew that he wasn't going to get the life that he deserved, you know, or the, you know, in terms of the length of it. And it's very hard to, I think, to move through the world knowing all of that not like, and this is not the sort of like garden variety resentment that like brought whatever two dozen assholes to walk down the street in the rain waving anti vax yeah, signs yeah, in my yeah, neighborhood last that. week. Those people don't even know what the fuck they're mad about. In this case, I think that like you had a legitimate beef. <laughs> like, and it's very difficult to think of other people in general, but it's extremely difficult to do that when you really urgently have to think about yourself and have to. I mean, not in a morbid way, but I mean, in terms of thinking about what you were going to get back and who you were going to be, like, that is momentous. And 
you know, if you were abrupt with nurses while you were going through this, like, authentic existential crisis, like, send them an edible arrangement afterwards, man. I'm sure you did. I mean, it just seems like one of those things that... I was definitely short with one attendant because, like, their job was to be there 24-7. Like, even if I went to piss, like, um, you know, if I was standing up, they had to monitor me because I was a fall risk. If I fell again, I would have another hemorrhage and die. And I remember being so, so pissed off um, that I was under this monitoring, like it was a hall monitor. And I remember snapping at the guy because, like, one time he went to go get a snack or whatever the fuck, and I was like, oh, it's my shot. Like, this is my chance to, like, stand up and go piss on my own and maybe even jerk off in the bathroom because no one's going to be there. And, you know, of course he comes, and I'm like, ah, nah. And he's like, Drew. Like, he's giving me the whole spiel, and I'm rolling my eyes the whole time. You're like, I'm aware that I could yeah. die. I thought I had a chance to jerk off in yeah, a season. Yeah, I didn't care. What part of that is hard for you to understand, I didn't sir? care. I wanted, I just wanted the time for me, because everyone was around me, and and also I was in a space where I just wanted to be alone. Like, my parents, they came in one day to visit me, and they were talking about my cousin, like, he had had, like, a a flight app rip them off or something like that. And they were going on and on and on about it. And my dad at one point pulls out his phone and like books a flight to show like, to show us like how the app was bad. And I got fucking pissed at my dad. I was like, dad, <laughs> nobody gives a fuck. Like put it away. And he was like, taking it back. He was like, Oh, well, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I wasted your time like that. And I remembered like being, just not wanting anyone to like, I don't know, like, like the memories that I do have, like, like Megan Greenwell said that she came with Barry and she gave me a bunch of Korean food and I remember them bringing it to me. Right. And I remember my memory is that I was happy that they brought it and that I ate all of it. And it's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. Megan was like, you ate one food, one bite, and then you bitched us to get you some tea. And then we got you some tea from the gift shop. And we brought it up to you, and you pissed and moaned because you couldn't drink it while lying flat on your back. You had to sit up, and you didn't want to sit up. And I have no memory of that. Or the memories that I do have don't align with it at all. And I know, yeah. I know for a fact that I'm not the truthful one here. Like, Have you seen the photo of yourself with all the Korean food laid out yeah, on the Yeah, that was Howard brought me that. My best friend Howard brought me some of that later on, and that I ate. And Howard was like... Okay, because you look happy as hell in that photo. Fuck and yeah. it's like the way that <laughs> my memory works would be... If you showed me a picture and there's a bunch of freaking like pizza on a table in front of me and I'm looking... I'm like lording over it like the way that Trump was in the White House when Clemson came and he's standing behind the ziggurat of filet of fishes being like, uh? <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, I ate the shit out of that pizza just because I saw that, that picture. Like over time, that image would supplant whatever actual memory. It's actually one of the few hospital photos that I have because the publisher was like... You know, do you have photos to, to send out? You know, we'll send them to TV stations and magazines and stuff. And there was only like that and like one other one, like a selfie I took of myself, like to post to Twitter when I was deranged, like, hey, I'm looking good. And I was like, I had wasted away to nothing. And I just remember, you know, the, the thing that I, I remember about all of this is that, you know, you know, that, that the people I loved had to put up with a lot of bullshit. And it's not like, you know, when again, when you see it in TV and movies, you know, you have these sort of emotional cues 
And, you know, once you get out of the coma, like, everything's good from there. Like, you know, you see movies where, like, the, a guy gets comes out of a coma and then stands right fucking up, which never yeah. fucking happens, right? You can't. Yeah. You've wasted away. You have no leg muscles. You can't stand. Well, they, they, the movies love to leave out the part between when the person wakes up and the whole family is crying and happy. And then, like, maybe you get a, a little cut scene of someone shuffling down a hallway in a walker. And then the next thing you see of them, they're dunking a basket. So the love... You know, like this is yeah. just it. You would leave that. So part the out. love, the love all comes from you know, you know the sort of after effects of them, of everybody tolerating your bullshit or calling it out to make sure that you're curtailing it, so you learn how to curtail it yourself. And I think sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm always good at that. Even now, you know, like I, you know, I, I'll get pissy and slack, or, or you know, or, or. You know, or or with my wife, like my wife will call me out on something, and I'll I'll get all defensive about it. Hey, hey, I take offense, and so I feel like it's always a constant struggle to make sure you're that right balance between being, uh, you know, considerate and you know, and also you know, self, you know, taking care of yourself. Because you know, I, I think about myself plenty. Like most of my daydreams, they involve me. You know, yeah. like my day, well, my daydream is, that's not unique to yeah. Drew. Again, not to puncture that, but I think, I think what you're describing is what it means to try to be a good person, period. Like that it's just, the stakes were obviously much higher in this case, but that's, I mean, as somebody who can be galling because of my own personality and my own, you know, mood disorder issues and stuff like knowing that you are taxing other people and making shit harder than it needs to be and then carrying the guilt from that and then trying to sort of show the appreciation for people bearing with you like that's it like that's every day of my life (laughs) and i think that it's for you i mean i don't i don't get the sense that you were ungrateful beforehand but i think that the process of sort of relearning how to be the version of you that you want to be is like another thing that, again, I, I found very interesting in the book, but which I've also enjoyed being a part of just through the nature of our relationship here, that this is, it's not just a matter of like getting your sense of smell back or whatever that like you are, we're starting much closer to the baseline than any adult ever gets to start. And yet here you are, like, this is the person I remember. Plus like, it's a, it's a great thing to see. I'm glad you were able to write the book, but I mean, I, I hope that you give yourself credit for that. Too. But that's that's very kind, and you know, it it's true because by contrast, you're a total cock, Roth. So, <laughs> and I and I've gotten worse. <laughs> no, I. So that's the other thing. You get to see how it could go otherwise. Now you should see. I used to have like a very defined uh, jawline when we started, and now I look like um, if Michael Chiklis was hung upside down. If I uh, if I may ask, like when you have low points, like. What do, what do those feel like? Like what do, what do they what do they mean to you? And how hard are they to get out of? Uh, very. I mean, it's recursive. You know, like it feeds itself. It's like what you were saying about people. You know, not wanting to go outside or not wanting to sort of deal with other people. It's not necessarily a function of sort of hiding uh, from people. It's that you don't really care for yourself very much, and you probably have at that time an outsized. I'm using the second person. I'm referring That's to myself, right. but this is I've, as one might. I, I use that, that trick the, all the time when I write. 
It's a lot easier, yeah. You can just sort of uh, pretend that you're doing color commentary on your yeah. own life. Get like real... You know, you ever have that feeling That's where it. you shit yourself because you drank too much, yeah. but it's 2 p.m. on a Sunday and you're... Right. <laughs> I, I use that trick. Up there just looking at my own actions, being like, I don't like this guy. <laughs> I know we can't do Gruden voice anymore, but that's that'll be my last time. The But it is a function of sort of being enough outside yourself that you are unable to kind of get the things that and for me now i'm in a healthy enough place that like i know that if i have a bunch of deadlines and i feel like i'm gonna miss them i know i'm gonna hit them i always do like i haven't missed one in years. right yeah i don't do that. and if i know that i'm an okay person in my heart if i know that that i'm that way it's still a lot of work to get that through to my my brain sometimes and i think for all of this in terms of the the way that i tend to recede in dark moments, the way that I sort of absent myself from my own life. It's because I don't really think that other people would want me to be in it very much. It's because of the fact that I don't care for myself enough in those moments to want to subject other people to me. And I think that that, again, is the sort of thing where I know that even like the depressed version of me is better than 30% of normal people all the time. You know, like it's (laughs) still... Yeah, I mean, 30% is a pretty low number. Like, that's basically the number of, of people that, uh, like, believe that Barack Obama was a hologram. Or he wasn't? You know. he wa- Well, again, it's some interesting stuff. You should check out Blake Trinan's Instagram story <laughs> to learn more. In this, But, I mean, it's just a question of getting sort of an actual handle on yourself and, and your role in the world. And, and I guess also getting over yourself and just being like, it doesn't matter. Like, all they want you to do is do your work. They don't really care if you're 100% happy or whatever, but yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a big thread in the book too. Getting over yourself to the extent that you can just sort of function normally is, uh, I guess for some people that's just all very natural. It has not been for me. And I think that, you know, in the book, like the, the work of you figuring that out is very much there on the page and kind of like interesting to read. I think that that's, not something that I've seen very much. And Lord knows I read enough fucking books about depressed people, like by depressed right. people. That's every novel. I think everybody tends to, <laughs> it's yeah, literally right, every fucking sort of, novel. It is. It's, you know, but they take it as like fact in there. I think that that's the part of it. Knowing that your, your fucking brain is lying to you. It's good that I know that it's lying when I'm depressed, but that doesn't necessarily get me from A to B. Right. You know, but in this case, like, there, it's clear that you were, like, able to sort of, I guess, maybe with perspective and then also knowing that there was this actual trauma that has these effects. Watching you kind of fight to bring those two things in line, I found to be really, uh, it's hard. There's not a non-corny word to end this <laughs> sentence. Inspiring was the one that popped into my head first. I mean, I think that that's just the work of trying to be a person there. It was cool to see it. And that page. work never ends, you know? I think that's yeah. one of the things you have to accept is that it just keeps going. You have to keep, you have to keep doing that work. There's never, a, you don't reach that point where you're like, well, I'm perfect. Like, you know, it's all good. Yeah. Like you can re- like give yourself credit for getting better by all means. But yeah, like once you start sort of uh, seeing, like taking your own side in a dispute against the entire rest of the world, like, yeah, that's bad. Don't it would also, it would be very easy for me, and I know because I did it, to use what happened to me as an excuse. Um, you know, to have grievances and to, um, and to not do that work. And, uh, 
you know, it's still something that I, that I, I think about and I, I try to, I try to, um, you know, get past, but it's, it's never, it's never done. But I, I will say, Roth, that, and I'm not saying this like for show, but I, I really am. I'm very glad you're my friend and I, hey, man, I feel so very lucky for I, that. I, so. This has been a real boon for me over a really ugly year, but I just am also, whatever. I appreciate yeah. you, dude. Thank hey. you for that. I feel All right, you know, let's, uh, now, this is a great time to do t- like, yeah, let's, let's take an ad break and come back and talk about stupid crap. We're now back and we get to play our, our funding games. It's time for a guy of the week. You want to remember a guy, Roth? More than anything, Drew. Let's uh, do it. Let's remember Andrew Jones. You remember Andrew Jones? Again, another guy that is right there on that dude guy. Well, nexus. you have to believe First in dudes. And I don't believe in dudes. You don't believe in dudes? No, I don't. See, it's, it's all guys to you. Just some guys are, are better well, guys. You than know what? Guys. It's like guys or like immortals. So, like, you know, Tom Brady, no, not a guy. Of course not. Like, but broadly speaking, Matt Diaz and Andrew Jones are both guys. I mean, to Andrew you. Jones was like pretty good. Like, was he a Hall of Fame nominee? Yeah, I mean, he didn't get very many votes. I think the issue for him is that if he had the first maybe five or six years of his career, he was legitimately the best center fielder I think I've ever seen. Yeah, like defensively, he was like a supernova, right? And he was a very good hitter, and it was he was the sort of good hitter that routinely becomes a great hitter later in their career, and was a lot of like sort of a decent batting eye, but he liked to swing too much, hit a lot of homers, but didn't necessarily know how to contribute to the offense otherwise and then he started to figure it out and then he signed a free agent contract with the Dodgers gained a bunch of weight and was never good again and I I don't want to say that that's like I don't blame him yeah for that's it. what I, mean, I would like, do Lord knows but yeah it, it definitely had that kind of feeling like you know you kind of cashed in you lived in metro Atlanta for a while and then at some point you're like I'm gonna get a house with an infinity pool in it and gain 30 pounds in two months uh I I brought up Andrew because and I I I don't begrudge anybody who gets fat off a contract unless they play for my oh. team then they're a bum. Uh, but uh, I bring up Andrew Jones because the Braves advanced uh, as of this taping last night. They beat the Brewers three games to one, and they're going to face the winner of Game Five between the Giants and the Dodgers. And whoever wins that game will be in my mind the only likable team left in the NF in the uh, MLB playoff bracket because the other side of it. It's the fucking Red Sox, yeah. who we dismissed Red last Sox week and like idiots. We were like, oh, yeah. they'll never get past the Rays. They fucking beat them in four, and they're going against the Astros. And I have, I'm have, i going to have to root for the Astros. I'm going to go full troll and root for the goddamn yeah. Astros. But you and my three, the Astros are somehow as a, a flavor of poison. A lot of people whose judgment I otherwise respect are just like, well, just a little sick. Well, you— like you're. I'm not curious about cheering for that. You know why? It's just not something it's I want. It's because before, um, before the signal stealing scandal and before all the cheating, they were a fun team to watch. Like they were. Yeah, they're and they still are really, really. Yeah, good. and 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 they're coached by you know they're managed by Dusty Baker and who doesn't want good things yeah, for Dusty? Yeah, that's Baker? the best I think argument for them. I mean, honestly, the team itself, good as they are, like I don't think that they were. They were cheating in a funnier way than other teams. I don't think they were cheating necessarily more egregiously or more period than other teams were. Every team tries to cheat. That was Justin said that last week. Like it's absolutely true. I think the thing that annoys me about them is that they they cheated. They received effectively no punishment of any kind and then have since yeah, been on this weird grievance tour about 
the punishment they didn't receive and the booze that they get in opposing stadiums. That there's a they lot really of leaned, they really enjoyed. It wasn't not. It wasn't just a heel turn for show. They enjoyed being dickheads, and that was the yeah. real problem. And it wasn't a fun type of heel turn either. Like if if they really wanted to play it up and like whatever. <laughs> like hit a nature boy woo after every double they hit do it that's fine like that would actually be fun to me instead it's got that kind of sour complainy like republicanish sort of element to it where they're you know it's really unfortunate that the fans were so low class as to boo us and it's like yeah it's got that little whiff of superiority to it that is just utterly yes. utterly yeah. misplaced do not care for it that said they're a beautiful baseball team um dodgers giants is fun yesterday night's game was boring but it's mostly been fun it's just weird that one of those teams is going to be eliminated and the other one is going to play a team that was like worse than the Mets for more than half the year <laughs> like that just doesn't feel right to me but I guess that's, that's the game man. that's why there's only one October don't hate you. the player etc yeah. etc dead or cancelled that's baseball you want to play dead or cancelled we've, yeah, we've man, actually we, we've gone into a, a, a sort of a phase of dead or cancelled where it's really not all that hard. It's really just an excuse to talk about the subject yeah. itself. So you're dead or canceled. John Gruden. Is John Gruden dead or canceled, David Roth? I'm glad this is elegant because I was feeling bad that I, like, I'm happy that we could have a, a nice adult conversation and that we could talk about your book. If we got through this whole podcast without addressing what a fucking <laughs> pig John Gruden is, we would have been doing our listeners a grave disservice, I think. You know, the thing about Gruden is that like, you know, his whole brand was this jovial dunce, right? He's just a football yeah. guy. Just a football guy. He didn't care. He was about right, football. Right, so a happy-go-lucky shithead. And, you know, like like competitive, but like, you know, even when he was mad, it was sort of funny and all that stuff. Yeah, because he was so ridiculous. But then, of course, underneath that, and I know this because I, I, I played football with these guys. I was a football guy like this, where it, you know, it lapses very quickly. And you're just being your, you know, your standard blithe, racist, sexist shitbag. And that's, yeah. that's who he was. And that is, what, 80% of the NFL in terms of coaching staffs and front offices? Like, nobody fucking blinked at this guy when he said this shit. No way. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's the part of it that I felt, this is a weird thing. I felt kind of naive after this came out. Because I think I knew that Gruden was probably like just prone to macho shitheadery in the way that like all coaches, you know, the NFL as a milieu, I think is really like, it makes that fester in a way that it would. He named his son Deuce. And the kid is like a fucking roid infused Oompa Loompa. Like, yeah. Incredible. Look up, just do a Google image search on Deuce Gruden. When you get five minutes in your day, you will not. Yeah. The Deuce is loose. Perfectly square. Yeah. Incredible. He looks like, um, like an animated character from a very early Sega (laughs) game. Like he's just one big pixel with some sunglasses on it, but the uh, the general like tenor of those emails was so much uglier than I think I thought Gruden was capable of. Not that I, I I thought that he wasn't a shithead. I just thought he'd be like a shithead in the locker room that he'd like snap someone with a towel and call them the f slur because like that's the only environment he'd ever been in. The idea of like sitting down. Or, like, on your phone or whatever. And just taking the time to, to write some real fucking racist shit to your buddy and send it to him is... I think that's different. That seems more considered. And, I mean, it's sort of hard. It will never be possible to think of him as anything like the way that he had... Like, this weird brand of 
like you said, jovial dumbass that he had. Like, he's just not that anymore. He's a dumbass for sure. But, like, all the rest of that shit just seems fake. I don't know how canceled he is. I feel like, do you feel like he won't be on TV again for the rest of the I think of he'll be lives? on Fox because if Fox can use Clay Travis as a fucking sideline reporter for college football right, right now, what, I mean, what difference does it make if they bring in John Gruden? Like, they yeah. were always. Also, I mean, it's like Travis is like a man with no attributes or talent for no! the game in terms of like being on. T- like, Gruden at least is pretty good at talking about football. He knows I actually, I actually don't it. agree with you on that, but I yeah. hated him in the booth because. Even when he was pointing out... He was annoying in the... I thought the quarterback camp stuff was... Yeah, even when he was pointing out like stuff that I didn't know, he wasn't particularly articulate or interesting about it. Like, like when right. Romo does it, like I can, I can get... Even Mark Sanchez, who's new to the booth, when he points out certain coverages and stuff like that, like I, like I, I take it in. Like I can process it. Gruden would just like spew out Spider-2Y banana... Yeah, like, I tell yeah. you what, I love That's this play, definitely- and he wouldn't really fucking describe it at all. Like he might, like he might vomit all over the t- the telestrator, like to sort of get it, but no, it doesn't fuck. Nobody fucking registers any of that shit. That's a big distinction. I think once you've got Tony Romo in the booth, you've outgrown the need for a Gruden type. I yeah. think that that's. Because it's not that they don't... I think the level of understanding is probably roughly equal between the two, but Romo can talk like a human being and can explain what you're seeing and why it's cool. Whereas Gruden, as much as he understands it, he can only communicate in like the source code of NFL football. So you're just getting zeros and fucking ones streaming down your screen. Like That's the, right. The because, because football is, is a language. So when coaches talk to each other, they all operate under the, the assumption that they know what each other is talking about because that's what they do, right? But when yeah. you're telling me that, even me, I played football for 10 years. I don't understand a lot of this shit. Like you still have to, you don't do it in a way that is patronizing, right? You're not like, well, the wide receiver's job is to catch the football. You don't do that. But you say, okay, well, on this, you know, if I was describing a screen pass to somebody, you say, okay, well, the pass rush is coming. You let them buy and you trick them into thinking that they have a free ride to the quarterback and you simply loft the ball over their head. Like you're, you're, I'm, I'm describing something to you that, you know, it, it, I'm describing it in a way that makes sense and you can process it and understand it very easily. Yeah. And, you know, even with stuff that's more complex than that, like why a screen got broken up, you know? You know, why, you know, you'll you'll see defenders that that they don't fall for the screen and they stay back and then they fucking destroy the running back for a five-yard loss. Like, stuff like that is well within the ability or should be within the ability of a color guy. And the number of them that can't fucking do it all that well is staggering, and Gruden was one of them, yeah. and the highest paid yeah. one, you know? And Gruden wasn't, he didn't fail in the way that I think a lot of color commentators fail. I've been thinking about this with baseball a lot of late, because with the exception of, I think, Adam Wainwright, there isn't really a good color commentator going right now in the entire postseason, scattered as it is across three networks. Right. But it's basically what you're describing. The color commentator's job is to explain what you just right. saw. Why is that happening, and why did it work? And more importantly, the off-ball shit you did not see, you know? Right, and and that makes it a more interesting experience to watch a game. It helps you appreciate the complexity of it and also understand what, what you're actually looking at in a way that you might not otherwise. So there's this narrow tier of guys that are capable of doing that. Then there's the guys that understand it, care a lot, but can't talk, which is right. And then below that, as you said, there's like... This is the bottom 
three quarters probably of color commentators who just reiterate what you saw and then explain that it was a matter of mindset or want to or uh you know never saying die or whatever the fuck just like actually obfuscating it even further and making it just completely incomprehensible in terms of, you know, if a guy gets a first down, it's because he wanted to get a first down more than the guy wanted to tackle him, keep him from doing it. Like, that's like how a baby would. Yeah, a lot of it is, a lot of the commentary is, I don't think you people at home appreciate how good of a throw that was or how good of a block it was. And I'm watching. I fucking know. It was a really good throw. Yeah. Like, I chose to do it, dude. Like, this is, like, if I didn't appreciate it, like, I would be watching the dog show. Like, I know when Aaron Rodgers makes a really good play. Like, I'm looking at it in real time. You have to tell me, you know, so you're, it's right. It's a reiteration. And I know you and the rest of the staff have bugaboos about NBA and baseball guys specifically who actively don't like their sports and in the NFL, it's actually the opposite problem, where they yeah, they like they it love too it. much. They fucking love it. They revere yeah, it. Like there, there is chirpy and is fucking Pollyanna as Schefter, uh, you know. But even even worse because they're not even relaying useful information like once in a blue yeah. moon. Right. They're just like blowing it up as like this sort of childlike spectacle. It is weird. The idea that in a lot of cases these are former players and former coaches. And I don't know if it's how they're directed by production teams or by higher-ups or whatever, but it's crazy to think that somebody could have, you know, a 12-year NFL career and then be watching these games in the booth and realize that they understand football at roughly, not just at the same level, they understand it at a higher level, but they understand it in the same way that they understood it when they were eight years old. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's just really weird to consider. Yeah, and I think a lot of them are, are compromised by the fact that, and we saw this with the Gruden scandal. You know, where they're all roped together. The guys who are common, like Gruden, Adam Schefter, Bruce Allen, people who are either covering the game or in the game or are out of the game, but still very much like it. They're all the same ilk, right? They're all, they're all a club. They don't like pissing yeah. each other off. It's like Hollywood where you can't say anything bad about, you know, your fellow actors or anything like that. Right, because you might need right. to work with them. It's all point. in, it's all in that same milieu, right? And... It, it sucks because then you're really not getting, you're not getting truthfulness out of anybody because all of them have, um, well, they have access, favor, and discretion, right? So yeah, like they do, right? Can I say one last thing about this that I've been thinking about more of late? That so this all starts. The reason we know about any of this is that the Washington football team is a fucking that's roster right. and has been an open sore on the league for a decade and a half, however long it's been since Snyder owned it. And in this case, like this is beyond the sort of chickens coming home to roost. Although very much they are roosting their asses off right now as a result of this to me, like the Bruce Allen sending those like pictures from the cheerleader calendar shoot topless photos of the cheerleaders that they did, that they didn't want taken basically doing like revenge porn shit on people that the team was already underpaying and like trying to pimp out to like sweet holders like just disgusting like literal criminal acts you know yeah and so like that they did that because they thought they could get away with it right like beyond being fucking assholes like the basic place where that starts is impunity and is the idea that like there are no consequences for me because like 
my boss is an owner of an NFL team and I'm close with him and look at what a bad job I've done in my actual job anyway. And here I am still doing it. That, that mentality, like when it's understood as like a series of bad apples that need to be thrown righteously into the garbage, it's not wrong. Like these are pretty rotten apples, but like you can't, make little individual fixes with that you can't make john gruden resign and go away for two years and pretend that this isn't still going on oh but they're gonna try people know that they can be held accountable for this shit and that they should be and will be then it's not gonna change no it's not which is why i would like to uh remind our listeners the tips at defector.com is our tip line and if you have any Hmm. of the emails uh that dan snyder said one of six hundred thousand. I was going to say, like, we just take a hundred. Yeah, like, you don't have to have 650,000 Bruce Allen work yeah, emails. Yeah, pull them out of a fucking bingo hopper. Like, I don't care which ones they are. <laughs> just give them, because they, they should fucking leak. It's disgraceful that, that they, you know, they basically they had no written report. I know damn well there's written shit somewhere. But the NFL was like, no, well, we'll just... We'll just leak the stuff about Gruden and say we didn't leak it. Wasn't that the thing where they had some white shoe law firm do a, like a thorough review of the organization, but they didn't take any notes and didn't produce a written yeah! And then at the end of it, we're like, they feel really bad. Mr. Snyder feels very bad about all those topless photos that got yep. taken. Yep. And he, well, oh, well, he was not, he was uh, unofficially not suspended for six games and, you know, showed up at a fucking photo shoot right before kickoff in week one. It's just fucking bullshit. Uh, we got to do something about owners, yeah. man. Do you want to answer a, a fun bag question real quick before we go? Let's do a fun bag question. Uh, l- then we'll take a week off, and then next week we'll come uh, back and do something uh, about uh, owners. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's be quick. By the way, he's lying. We're not going to take a week off next week. Uh, this is from no. Matt. Uh, make it quick. This might be a sports radio topic that's been done to death, but more football penalties should include a loss of down, right? Yeah, sure. I was going to say no. That's actually right. a pretty... <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, if I think that... If it's a sufficiently serious penalty, a loss of down is like, that's way worse than moving a team back five or ten years. Oh, yeah. Loss of down is a fucking dagger. It's totally. Yeah, it's a killer. Like, suddenly you're, then you're looking at, what, instantly it's third down and everybody's upset. Yeah, I I want to agree with, with Matt here, but I already know that the Vikings would lose like 50 downs due to penalties. And I don't. <laughs> Nobody. What is going, so are they, like, that team is falling apart even though they're they're winning now? Like, what is going I on? I think everyone there? just hates Zimmer and... Okay, and they they hate Kirk, but Kirk, you know, it plays well enough where they can always say like, "Well, we've got bigger problems," and then they just fuck up again and again and again. They're, they're just they're an average team that doesn't realize it's an average team, and that was the same problem they had a year right. ago. That's what's kind of amazing about them is that they they do find a way to get to whatever. Now it'd be you know nine and eight or whatever, but like to just miss the playoffs in the most enraging possible way every year is really. I mean, I know it's bad for you, but if you're outside of it, uh, it really is a pretty remarkable. I, you know what? I understand. I'm not. I'm not even gonna. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be self aware, and as, as part of my yeah. as part of my pursuit to be We've a more empathetic, this. better person, I'm gonna see things from your side, David Roth. And agree with you. I appreciate it. But, but welcome to the Giants fandom. This is, you're going to fucking hate it. Brandon man. Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the <laughs> promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector Die. 
Facebook.com too while you're at it. And of course, the night the lights went out is now available uh, at every retailer, every bookstore. You can get the ebook, you can get the audiobook, which I narrate. Uh oh. And uh, you can get yeah. it, you can get pretty much in any form. There are excerpts up now at Slate, also, and at Men's Health. And trust me, if you uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear know. about it. He's biased, but it really is. It's extraordinarily well, that- uh, Thank I you reckon. kindly. It's good to it's good to have you, and we will uh, we'll see you next week. We're off, okay? Right on. Bye right, bye.